All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with crime in the city, the surge in random, unprovoked stranger assaults in Vancouver, the sharp increase in property damage in the city. Take a walk downtown. You can't help but notice all the boarded-up, broken windows. It's happening in many different neighborhoods, and business owners are frustrated to see thousands of dollars in damage to broken windows just to rip off a few items in their stores. I've got Vancouver Deputy Police. Police Chief Howard Chow standing by first. Have a listen to this report now about all those broken windows. This is from Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. We got broken into twice in two weeks. Dave Dove's front window smashed before Christmas for two hats. People are desperate. Before the side window was broken with jackets and clothing taken. Between both of them it cost us five grand in glass. A substantial loss for the clothing store, which noticed an increase in crime once CERB payments ended. Yeah, it definitely feels like the VPD is stretched thin. Okay, let's talk about the VPD and the police response to the surge in random attacks and property crime we're seeing in the city right now. My guest is Howard Chow, Deputy Police Chief for the Vancouver Police Department. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Deputy Chief, thank you for coming on this morning. Good morning, Mike. Okay, let's talk first of all about the random, unprovoked stranger attacks that we're seeing in Vancouver for a day on average. And I know you saw some more of this on the weekend, right? What can you tell us? Well, this is something we put out uh, probably around four or five months ago, and we talked about random stranger attacks. So these are completely motiveless. They're unprovoked. They're random. I know some people are conflating these numbers and suggesting that it's two drunks that come out of a bar and they get into it or road rage. We're not talking about those incidents because we've got lots of data on that as well. We're talking about incidents where somebody's walking down the street, plugging a meter, going to the park, and another person comes up and sucker punches him or her, knocks him to the ground, uh, stabs people in a coffee shop, which we've seen. Uh, and these are happening at an alarming rate of about uh, more than four a day, um, these types of assaults. And it's up. Our data is up from 35% uh, from 2019 when we uh, compared it to uh, that that year. So a huge concern for us this weekend alone. We had a couple more, like we had... Uh, uh, a couple of note anyways, and, and even though we had many more, but we had one in the 1100 block of, of Denman around 8 in the morning. Uh, this guy uh, is just walking along, he gets sucker punched, knocked to the ground. We get in the 3300 block of Kingsway last night, uh, we got a person that's going into a restaurant and for no reason at all uh, gets hit with a butt of a uh, replica gun. Uh, has a knife pulled on him and then a shot with his pellet gun uh, before the individual individual takes away, takes off. And we ended up catching this uh, person, uh, and we're looking at him for a number of other incidents uh, that are unprovoked like this. Yeah, when you so, talk about motiveless crimes, like when someone assault someone on the street like that you'd think like oh they're mugging someone they want to they want to rob them like is that what's that is that not what's going on it's not, these are not attempted robberies this is no, just like mindless not. violence yeah they're not and, and obviously when we get the individuals arrested there's interviews and things like that and more evidence that comes forward but uh on the surface uh they they to our officers appear completely motiveless there's for no reason at all uh, why they're getting assaulted. And we've seen come, some of these high-profile ones that we've put out to the media, um, and with the help of the media and the public, we've been able to make some significant arrests. Speaking of Vancouver, Deputy Police Chief Howard Chow, let's talk a little bit about some of the property damage we're seeing right now. We heard that Global News report there about the broken windows that we're seeing reported. Is, is there a surge in broken windows right now? There is, in, in particular in certain neighborhoods, like our downtown core. 
And you've probably seen windows uh, that have been just boarded up by plywood because there's also supply chain issues because of the, the significant numbers of broken windows, but also, um, you know, difficulty getting glass at this stage. So some of these, and you talked about it at the top of your show, where where it's for tens of thousands of dollars to steal a $50 item out of the window. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's heartbreaking when you have businesses and retailers trying to make a go of it after COVID and, and they're struggling as it is and they're unable to get insurance and it's coming out of their bottom line is really what it comes down to. Yeah, I'm, I looked at the video that was released by VPD here in the last 24 hours or so of the number of weapons that were seized. Were these weapons seized on the, the downtown east side? And I will I will tweet out the link, the YouTube link to this video. I encourage people to check it out about the volume and the variety of weapons that are being seized on the streets of the city. Where did all those weapons come from? They're from the downtown east side, but it, all that shows is just one team's uh, collection of these weapons um, that, that they compiled and put onto a video. Uh, and it was, uh, as you can see in the video, is narrated by a very senior uh, constable, uh, David Sieverding. And he talks about just the, the sheer staggering numbers of weapons that they're pulling off people are recovering uh, in the downtown east side. This is one team out of 44 teams that we have working frontline policing. And uh, when you see the array of weapons, everything from tasers to improvised weapons of big wrenches tied to chains and uh, uh, batons. It's it's quite a concern. Yeah, there's like, when you take, I encourage people to check that video out and you can see the, the variety of weapons. I mean, there's a lot, there are guns there, but there's also replica guns, right? Like people carry around these fake guns. Why do they do that? Oftentimes it's, uh, you know, to give themselves protection or to yeah. commit crimes uh, because you can see those guns, they look... Uh, strikingly real, and it looks strikingly real to police officers when they're arresting these individuals as well. So um, it's something we're working with different levels of government to try to get a handle on and get some charges on, on these firearms, which uh, imitation firearms, which are proving to be a concern for us. Yeah, let me ask you about uh, resources for the Vancouver Police Department. Does the VPD have all the resources they need right now to deal with this? Like We're we're stretched thin. Um, you know, like we're uh, dealing with the numbers that we had asked for and, and we got it, got this from council last year in terms of our budget, but we're looking at the same numbers of police officers on the ground, boots on the ground as we did back in uh, around 20, uh, 2009. So when you look, consider that, that uh, population has increased 12 or 13% in Vancouver during that same span and about 17% lower mainland. The same number of police officers, uh, similar number of police officers, what we're dealing with back in 2009. But uh, that's... How many you know, is like, that? How, doing, many, how many police officers are there in the city? I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think 1347 is uh, where we're at right and, now. And, and it's been and that number f since 2009? About 2010, we crept up a bit uh, in 2017 because of uh, operational review, but now we're, uh, uh, we're back down. And, and it's because all departments had to struggle through COVID and the city, not including Vancouver, uh, 
was included in that as well. But the problem is, is that we're dealing with these kind of numbers and also record numbers of, uh, of protests, you know, over 800 protests last year, the hate crime increases that we had to deal with. Um, the fact that COVID, now that COVID restrictions are lifted, all the researchers and our experts are telling us that we can expect crime to increase over the ne- this next period. So these are some of the things that we're having to deal with. And I know there's people that have been talking about crime going down, but say they're going down in property crime, but they're going up in violent crimes. And those are the ones that the public and we're the most concerned of. Speaking of Vancouver, Deputy Police Chief Howard Chow. So it, it sounds like if you were to articulate what is the most pressing need right now, you would say, what, for more officers? You need more boots on the ground? Well, I think it's a, it's a constellation of issues. It's uh, social policies that we've got going on in terms of uh, shelters all all put into certain areas that don't have the adequate supports to them. Um, and we saw that happen to neighborhoods that effectively changed the neighborhood overnight. Uh, when you've got certain shelters like the Lugot Hotel, which we talked about on Granville Street, uh, accounted for a thousand police calls for service in one year. Um, and then when you see four to five shelters that are put in within a multiple uh, number of blocks away from each other, then that, that proves to be a problem if we don't have the adequate supports. Uh, there's things like... Uh, uh, Serb or Serb money uh, stopping, and you, I, I believe Peter Mesner talked about that as well. Um, you know that created a, a, a need for some of the offenders that, that all of a sudden didn't have that access to money. Uh, we got the core city phenomenon where Vancouver's the big city, um, kind of like the epicenter for the region, and it draws in our homeless population. It draws in uh, people that come here, um, you know, to work and for social events and for sporting events. Tourism, we get about 11 million tourists a year. Um, a lot will come to Vancouver, as we know. So all those things are expected to increase over this next little bit. Um, an- another area, if I can, Mike, is, is sure. the, you know, just on, we talked about the incidents over the weekend. One thing that we were seeing uh, as well this past weekend is the number of spitting incidents. And we've been looking at our data, and we're still unpacking a lot of that. But we get about one a day uh, where somebody is spat on, which is, works out to be about six a week. And and what's even concerning about this is 70 72% are complete strangers. Um, 25% the victims are either police officers or loss prevention officers. Um, and, you know, we've seen that with our assault police officers going up 31% over our three-year average. Wow. So these are some of the things that also we're, we're kind of dealing with uh, in the public safety front. Uh, Deputy Chief Howard Chow, thank you for being on the show today. appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye now. All right. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the changes to BC COVID rules and restrictions now. The indoor mask mandate is gone. That happened Friday. Some exceptions where you'll still be required to mask up. The BC vaccine card system set to be phased out too. I've got BC Health Minister Adrian Dick standing by. Here's Bonnie Henry uh, making the mask announcement last week. Have a listen. Masks will no longer be mandatory in those broad ranges of indoor environments that this order sets out. However, some settings will still require that you wear a mask. For example, for uh, healthcare settings, physicians' offices, patients' contact areas. But most low-risk locations, it will now be an option and no longer a necessity. Okay, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry last week announcing the changes to that mask mandate. Let's discuss now with my guest, Adrian Dix, British Columbia's Minister of Health. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. 
Okay, it was interesting. I was listening closely to what she said there about some of the exceptions for the mask mandate that would still be in place. So she mentioned, for example, health care settings. Can you expand a little bit on that? Like, what if you go to the dentist office or a chiropractic appointment? You got to wear your mask there? Well, well, let's just uh, take a look at it. Uh, first of all, obviously hospitals, right? Those, okay. those rules will still be in place. Long-term care settings. Rules where there's also a requirement to be vaccinated to enter. And uh, rapid testing continues to take place. So those are, and I think uh, that would be pretty obvious to everybody, given the vulnerability of people in those environments. I think generally across healthcare, if you're going to a healthcare setting, you should wear a mask. And uh, I think that's, uh, I think Dr. Henry made that clear uh, on uh, Thursday uh, that you should wear a mask when you go to a healthcare setting. It makes sense for the protection of you and for everybody else. And uh, there will be moments, for example, when uh, if you're being checked out at the doctor's office where you remove your mask, that would have been the case, uh, that would have been the case now in any event. And I think that that's the right thing to do. And in general, Mike, you know, uh, I saw, I was out this weekend, uh, not just healthcare settings, but I saw uh, the vast majority of people where I shop uh, continuing to wear masks. So I think that people are, are continuing to do that. And I think we should all remember that masks have an effect for our own protection, but also an effect for the protection of others. And so when people continue to wear masks, uh, that should be seen as a good thing. Are you wearing your mask out in public still? Yes, I am. Okay. And that's like every indoor public space you go to, you continue to mask? Every indoor public space. In fact, in my neighborhood, uh, I live near Joy Skytrain Station. People know this, that that, uh, most people are still wearing them outside. And uh, I was on uh, Skytrain. I'll be on Skytrain today. And the vast majority of people wearing their masks, and I will be too. Okay. Speaking of BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, you mentioned uh, the rules around continuing to wear the mask in in a healthcare setting. So... Let me just see if I get this specifically correct. If you go, let's say you go to a massage therapist appointment or a chiropractic appointment, you're, you're just, it's a recommendation to wear the mask in those settings or it's mandatory? Uh, I think, I think, uh, I think you should wear a mask in those, se- in those settings. I have to double but check. Not man- on but the it's not ladder. mandatory though, right? I'll have to check on the ladder um, for you, Mike, and I'll do that uh, before the break, uh, during the break. But I think, uh, I think it's the case that, uh, in healthcare settings in general, it should be a requirement to wear the mask, and that should be the expectation as well. Okay. Let me ask you about visitation rules in long-term care. We've done a lot of focus on this on the show, and there's a lot of people who were separated from loved ones for a long time. What are the rules right now for visiting loved ones in long-term care? Well, they'll uh, develop over the next week, and uh, you know, I think by next Friday, this will be the case everywhere. It's the case in most places now that uh, residents can have uh, multiple visitors. The only rules are this. There are rules at the door, right? Have to be vaccinated, have to have your vaccine card and show it, uh, have to have a rapid test because that's what we're doing in those, uh, uh, those environments, and you have to be masked. And all three of those things uh, make a lot of sense in the current context. But, you know, what was happening before the rule that was in place starting in January was that each resident would have one designated visitor and... Uh, now you can have essentially as many visitors as you like. There are, you know, controls, some controls on visitation. For example, in a multi-bedroom, having, you know, many, many visitors might not be the right thing to do. And the facility might have rules in that place, its own rules. But the core rules are at the door, that uh, there's not a limit to people who can come in and visit a resident in long-term care, but you've got to meet those criteria to get there. 
Is the vaccination mandates in British Columbia right now, are any of those being altered? Like for people who are required to get vaccinated now as a condition of their employment, are any of those categories changing? Not changing. Uh, the ones that are provincial health orders are in healthcare. That's 180,000 people. That's a lot of people, all the people in the public health care system. That's 129,000 in the direct health care system, 50,000 in the long-term care system. All of them are vaccinated now. All of them will continue to have to be vaccinated. Okay. What about, are there any other wider provincial mandates for vaccination requirements? Like if you're an employee of a government or Crown Corporation? Or yeah, there, there are. Those aren't provincial health orders, but uh, a number of um, another a number of businesses and others have, uh, have mandates in place, and I haven't heard of any of those changing at this point. Okay. There was also a movement at one point to require mandatory vaccination for... Uh, enhanced care services like this goes back at you know chiropractors massage therapists dentists uh, dental assistants would face mandatory vaccination and that that is changing is that correct well here's how it's going to work everyone's going to have to declare their vaccination status and that will be uh and the deadline for that is march 31st that was changed from march 24th because um, in part because novavax which is a new vaccine some called an all-natural vaccine more like uh, the vaccines we've had uh, up to now is, is delayed in coming to BC. We expect it here either this week or early next week. So we want to give people an opportunity. 1,500 people have signed up for that. want to give people an opportunity to do that. And March 24th would not have allowed for that. So the deadline for that is March 31st. You have to declare your vaccine status across regulated health professions. That includes, of course, doctors and nurses who are largely covered by the previous vaccine mandate, but also uh, pharmacists, naturopathic physicians, chiropractors, and others. And so what's going to happen now is that uh, there's going to be uh, a requirement at, at some level, and we're, we're working this out, to inform the patients about, about the vaccination status of, uh, of the practitioner. That wow. would be the first step, and there may be more steps after that, but that would be the first step, it, essentially to ensure that uh, if you're going to a dentist's office that you know... Uh, people are vaccinated or not so the so if i'm hearing you correctly a dentist would allow be allowed to continue practicing even if the dentist is is unvaccinated but the patient would have to be told that correct? that's right for the moment right. that's that's the intent so that we have uh, uh we we ensure that there's an informed consent on the part of the of the patient right and that can only happen if there's knowledge and how that will work out is something the colleges are working through now but that would be the first step there may be other steps after that for certain higher risk prof- uh, professions, you know, where the contact is more significant. And remember, the pandemic isn't over. So we have to we have to continue to see. Uh, and that means that um, and we don't know, especially what's going to happen in the fall with respect to case rates, with respect right. to variants of concern. So uh, all of uh, all of these decisions are always subject to review. Speaking to Health Minister Adrian Dix, let me ask you briefly about the BC vaccine card system, which is still in place, but that is being phased out too, right? When will the vaccine card be gone? That's right. Uh, midnight on April 8th, uh, that's the plan. Uh, of course, we're going to continue to monitor case counts until then. But if the trajectory of, uh, of hospitalizations and critical care and test positivity, which are all more important now than case counts and the way these things are determined, the number of healthcare workers off sick, etc. All of our indicators continue to be in decline, and we're going to obviously we're going to uh, the vaccine card provincial health requirements will be taken away at that point. 
Okay. It'll still be used in some settings, as, as noted, uh, in particular in healthcare. But the BC vaccine card would be, uh, would be phased out for use, say, in restaurants at that point. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about relaxing COVID restrictions in BC with my guest, Health Minister Adrian Dix, and lots of phone calls for him. So let's go right to the calls. David in Langley. Hi, David. Go ahead. Good morning, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. I just want to get a clarification. Minister Dix, you made a comment about the mask protecting others and protecting yourself. And um, I just want to clarify that. Uh, having worked in the industry, and safety industry, the masks, the typical hospital masks that are people are wearing that are by at pharmacies, Costco, etc., do not provide or have not been tested to protect you by any agency that will give you anything. So if it's an N-rated mask, they will provide protection. And those are work, typical workplace masks um, only to a certain requirement. So an, an, N30, an N95 mask, well, there's a three microns. So if you're drywall, dry, uh, standing drywall in an open area, as an example, it will give you protection, but other than anything smaller than that, they will not. Okay, so minute, Minister. Uh, well, I, I think it is fair to say that different masks, masks provide different levels of protection. My point is, part of the reason we've been wearing masks in indoor public spaces is to limit the transmission of COVID-19. It's a practical way for people to do that. It provides them with some protection, and it provides other people with protection from when we for example, spread droplets around, right? So, I mean, it's a practical way to, to protect one another. It's demonstrated, I think, um, effectiveness through the COVID-19 pandemic to do so. And it still requires that. What we're saying is that levels of transition do not justify that being a provincial health order, that being the law in indoor public spaces anymore. And we're going to adjust to not doing it. But what I'm what I'm also saying is it's a sign of respect for other people as well as a protection for ourselves. And that's something we should all consider. Let's go to Dave on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Michael. Just want to say, Mr. Dix, you've done a fantastic job over the last couple of years of um, being out there, being a point person with um, Dr. Henry. So my hats are off to you. My daughter brought this to my attention the other day. April the 8th, you say the vaccine card are going to be nonchalant, may or may not come back in the future. All those people that jumped through hoops to get triple vaccinated, boosted, and everything else, the unvaccinated people seem to get a free pass after April the 8th. Can you explain that to me? Minister. They're not getting a free pass. Uh, You're 30 times more likely to get sick if you're not vaccinated. 30 times more likely to get critically ill, I should say, in BC right now today, 30 times more likely, which is really an exceptional amount. And so, uh, you know, it continues to be the case that people who are not vaccinated are taking a risk with their health with respect to COVID-19 right now at this point in the pandemic. So it's not a free pass. And I'd encourage everybody to get vaccinated. There are new vaccines uh, that have come on that provide and address some of the concerns that some people have expressed to me about the, the current vaccines. I'm not sure if those concerns are justified, but nonetheless, it provides them with, a, with another option. 94% of people in BC, of adults, are vaccinated. 94%. 6% are not. So that's 16 to 1. And what I would say to everybody is that it's not a free pass anymore. What we're saying is that the requirement of the vaccine card is not as significant now and won't be as significant if trends continue. 
after April the 8th. So we're moving away from that because we want to do as few measures as possible while keeping people safe. That doesn't mean it won't come back, uh, but it does mean that people, um, that the vaccine card uh, won't be required after that date. But there's no free pass. And the real, the real risk of not being vaccinated is the risk of COVID-19, both to your life, to your health, and even to your long-term health. Let's go to Mary calling from Vancouver Island. Hi, Mary, go ahead. Hey, uh, so I'm a family doctor in, uh, on the island in Victoria. My husband is a rheumatologist. And we are totally unclear about the mask mandate for patients coming in to see us in our clinic. Um, You said that it should be in hospitals, but you have not been clear, like Bonnie Henry, that patients coming into the clinic to see physicians should be wearing masks. Well, let me be clear. They should be wearing masks. Okay, should be, or they're required to be? Is that mandatory if you go into a walk-in clinic? Uh, the, the, in terms of a public health clinic, absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, and look, look, in terms of a, a doctor's office, I think that's clear. And by the way, many businesses, a number of businesses, require masks still regardless. So uh, if, even if you weren't in a doctor's business, you still have the ability within your business, you judge that necessary for you to keep you or your employees safe, the people in the business safe. Um, to have a mask requirement in businesses, it's just not the uh, it's just not the law in those businesses. But in healthcare settings, everyone's got to wear a mask. Okay, squeeze in one more call, Steve in Richmond. Steve, please go quickly. Go ahead. Hey, uh, I was just wondering uh, what you thought about the uh, documents that the judge forced Pfizer to release that had over ninety thousand uh, vaccine injuries. You know, blood disorders, autoimmune disorders. You know, just a multitude of things. Minister, I don't think got, the public really knows about. Minister, we got thirty seconds here. Go ahead. Uh, these are some of the most va- effective vaccines in the history of vaccines, and some of the safest. Every time there's an adverse event, it's called an AFI. We register it. You can see it on our government website, just so that there's full transparency. These are effective, safe vaccines that have worked very effectively for people, and in particular. The pediatric vaccines for those 5 to 11 have been safe, and I recommend that everyone, if they haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. Because you know what's unsafe? Not being vaccinated in a COVID-19 pandemic. Minister, thank you for your time today, and I appreciate you taking the questions. Hey, anytime. Take care. Well, let's talk about the war in Ukraine now. Russian troops continuing to advance on the capital city of Kiev. The shelling of cities continues and the flood of refugees increasing. Peace talks are happening, but don't seem to be going anywhere. How does this war end? Well, remember at the start of this conflict, Vladimir Putin declared he wanted to get rid of the Ukrainian government. This appeared to be a war about regime change. So the plan seemed to be... Uh, remove the government and install some sort of a puppet government in Ukraine. Have a listen to this. This is the director of the CIA, William Burns, uh, in his analysis on what a puppet regime would do in Ukraine and could it even survive in the face of Ukrainian resistance. Have a listen to this. I failed to see and our analysts failed to see how he could sustain a puppet regime or a you know pro-Russian leadership that he tries to install in the face of what is a massive opposition from the Ukrainian people. Okay, so could this devolve into urban warfare? Let's discuss now with my guest, Major John Spencer, retired 
Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Forum. He is an expert on urban warfare. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Major Spencer, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time here. If, if that's what we get into, is this what you sort of foresee in this conflict, that this evolves into a, a brutal kind of urban battle on the streets of the major cities of Ukraine? Absolutely. It's what I foresaw on day one. Um, this was a, a war, an invasion to take the government. It hasn't changed. Uh, urban areas or cities have always been the political seats of power, the economic engines of nations. Russia's one goal is to penetrate the capital city of Kiev and to overthrow the current government. Right. And you've, you have said war is hell. All war is hell, but urban warfare is hell on earth, especially for the, the attackers, the aggressors. Why do you say that? So, you know, based on my own experiences in Iraq, I was part of the Iraq invasion. Uh, I was a part of the Battle of Star City in 2008. In my decades of researching urban warfare, militaries avoid urban combat at all costs because we call it the great equalizer. When the attacker moves into urban terrain, one, the defenders already have the strongest form of war. So the de defense, as in I can sit in a bunker and shoot at you, and you have to cr cross the open ground, cross the street in order to get at me, is a really bad situation for the attacker to be. But in the urban terrain, unlike all other environments on the planet, the military's powers don't work as well. We call it the great equalizer. So they can't see into the train to identify the enemy locations to strike ahead of time. They have to get really close to them, which we, we in the military, or when I was, don't like to do. Um, they don't have really a lot of weapons that can hit the enemy, even if they knew what building he was in, right? So most, it's really hard to punch through concrete. Uh, the list goes on and on. They can, they can pop out from anywhere. Literally, there could be a a thousand snipers all around you, you just yeah. wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Right. So if, if that, if therefore that means that the Ukrainian defenders would have the advantage in a, in a bloody urban conflict like that, what does that mean for Putin and his goals here, his military goals in Ukraine? Can they be achieved at all? Can Putin win this war? I mean, there's no certainties in war, Mike. So of course he could still have it out. Um, he made a, a giant blunder, in, in the early aspect, he attempted to do it rapidly, which is yeah. which is what a military does in an invasion, right? If you think about our, we took Baghdad down in you know nine days. You want to rapidly overwhelm the defenders so they don't get inside the urban areas and defend. You want to strike them before you get there. He showed he couldn't do that, so now he's he is he is he is literally freaking out because he's not going to give up on the goal. It's just not in him. But at this point, he's given them so much time to prepare the defense. And, the, oh, by the way, nobody thought the Ukrainians would fight like this. Yeah. Normally, even in urban combat, there's only like a couple thousand fighters in the city. Now, I mean, there could potentially be tens of thousands of fighters inside Kiev. Yeah, yeah. I'm speaking of Major John Spencer, retired Madison Policy Forum. He's a an expert in urban warfare. Hey, John, let me play another clip here for you from the CIA director in his testimony in front of a congressional committee last week. And he touches on a point that you just made here where he talks about some of the fundamental mistakes that Putin made at the start of this invasion. And he made a lot of them. Have a listen and then I'll get your thoughts. 
Putin has, has commented privately and publicly over the years that he doesn't believe Ukraine's a real country. He's dead wrong about that. Real countries fight back. And that's what the Ukrainians have done quite heroically over the last 12 days. Um, as you said, Mr. Chairman, I think Putin is angry and frustrated right now. He's likely to double down and try to grind down the Ukrainian military with no regard for civilian casualties. Major John Spencer, do you agree with that analysis that Putin miscalculated on many aspects of this invasion? So now he seems to be kind of cornered, unpredictable, potentially to lash out with even more civilian casualties. Is that your analysis of it? Absolutely. I 100% agree with everything he just said. I mean, and to be frank, a caged bear is much more dangerous than a bear on the hunt. Uh, I think we're in a really dangerous spot now because um, the generals, his generals told him that they could do this quickly, 72 hours maybe. And that's why we've seen so many other failures like logistics and the men stopping and surrendering. Uh, he's in a really bad situation. I don't think he, to be honest, and I'll, I'm frank, I don't think he could take Kiev now if he, no matter what he does, even if he tried to bomb it into submission, which is a tactic, uh, you're right, you're to get the goal. At this point, uh, I don't, I don't see how he off-ramps, but I don't see any other chance but to off-ramp. Let me ask you your thoughts on NATO's position on this. And we continue to hear from NATO leaders, including U.S. President Joe Biden, that American forces will not fight a war against Russia on the ground in Ukraine. They, can, they continue to resist calls for this no-fly zone to close the airspace over Ukraine. Do you think that that is the correct and rational position for NATO to take right now? Or do you think we're going to get dragged into this thing, whether we like it or not? No, I, you know, I, I taught strategy at the United States Military Academy. I understand the geopolitical aspects of this. The fact that Ukraine wasn't a part of NATO doesn't mean that we couldn't have come. Um, but this how fast the, the lines are pretty clear on from Russia's aspect, everything he's saying and doing and NATO and everybody else's, and we all know where the lines are, even though we can pump anything we want in there, we just can't take our own fighters, people like that I serve with, and put them against a Russian, because then that escalates really to theater war, to, to World War Three. No, I think it's a good position um, to yeah. be, but also to draw red lines in the sand, like, hey, Putin, if you... And this is what we do, right? We, we message each other. Putin messaged, say, I have nuclear weapons. And like, okay, I understand. Everybody stay out. Um, and then we can message, if you use chemical weapons in Ukraine, Ukraine is not Syria. If you do it, then we're crossing the lines that we're staying behind at this moment. So I, I actually agree with our position right now, unfortunately. Major John Spencer is my guest, Madison Policy Forum. He's an expert on urban warfare. What did you think about the reports here that we saw in the last 48 hours? We had multiple news organizations reporting, John, that uh, the Russians had reached out to China for some sort of potential military backup or assistance here, China denying that report. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so this is, we're actually seeing geopolitical warfare on the chess map. China, China's not dumb. Uh, China knows that if it backs the bad guys, then that, that changes all the current lines. And China is pretty masterful at you know, helping around the world and doing things around the world with, and having that plausible deniability, that's an overt ask to them. Easily, uh, no, the answer is no. Uh, until we get into a different phase, if this trend, you know, then you'd see maybe a position change. But right now, of course, the answer is uh, no, dude. I'm not with you yet. 
Major Spencer, thank you for your time and your analysis today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. You bet. Thank you. That's uh, retired Major John Spencer there from the Madison Policy Forum. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk more about the war in Ukraine. On the other side, I'll speak to Jonathan Miller, McDonald Laurier Institute, another expert for you coming right up. Don't go anywhere. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the war in Ukraine. You heard my conversation there with retired Major John Spencer with his analysis of the situation on the ground in Ukraine. He believes that Putin is in a world of trouble here. He believes that this will turn into a bloody urban conflict, guerrilla warfare type tactics. And it's going to be difficult for Putin to extract himself. Meanwhile, we see these reports about the Russians reportedly uh, turning to their allies in China and asking for some military backup. China uh, denying uh, those reports today. Let's check in with Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Director and Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jonathan, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on. Hey, Jonathan, yeah, thanks for doing this. Let's first talk about those reports about whether China uh, has a, a role here and that whether Russia has approached China for arms and assistance, something that China is denying. I mean, even if Russia had done that, they, w- they would probably deny it anyway, though, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a troubling and a sort of, I guess, unexpected turn, especially if the Russians were thinking about this a, a month earlier. Um, if you even... You know, think of the context of Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping uh, meeting uh, at the opening of the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Beijing, yeah. and talking about this uh, alliance or commitment that had uh, that had no limits. Uh, and now, a month later, we're in a, to a point where Russia has exhausted itself militarily, completely underestimated the um, the fortitude of the Ukrainian forces, and is now sort of going to China, almost hat in hand, asking them for assistance. Um, I think, I mean, there's profound implications for this. Uh, from the Chinese side, you know, of course, they benefit from the weakening of, of the Western approach and NATO and the United States. But on the same side, uh, the last thing that they want to do is get embroiled into a larger conflict with the United States. Um, so I think it's a really pivotal decision uh, right now for how China reacts to this. Yeah, I guess there is a couple of different angles on it. I mean, you have the potential for China to provide some sort of military assistance, but could there also be some sort of effort by China to assist Russia economically to lessen the punishment of these Western sanctions? Is that on the table? Yeah, I think that's probably more of the, li- the likely of the scenarios. I think the, mili- the pure military assistance, I think, is challenged in so many ways. Number one, I think, and you'll see right now happening uh, in the high-level talks between uh, Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, uh, and his uh, counterpart, Yang Jiechi, in-, in China, which is happening in Rome right now. Um, that the Americans will basically be telling the Chinese in no uncertain terms that uh, if there is military assistance provided uh, to Russia, that there will be secondary sanctions to deal with. The more challenging thing comes on making those sanctions bite in the economic realm, and I think that's where uh, Russia will look to China. But frankly, I mean, the options are limited. Uh, China already imports a lot of of Russian gas, uh, and by any means, I think in this situation, they have the leverage um, you know, Russia may see them as equal partners, but I think very much the Chinese see Russia as a junior partner. And as their leverage increases, it becomes even more of a junior partner. So whether it comes to the price that they end up uh, paying or agreeing on uh, when it comes to Russian gas, I think uh, the Russians will find themselves in, in a worse and worse place as this uh, continues to go on. 
Speaking of Jonathan Berkshire Miller, McDonald Laurier Institute, you, you touched earlier, Jonathan, on Putin's strategy going into this conflict, and you said that he appears to have made some some real catastrophic blunders here. And there seem to be a, a lot of mistakes that he has made. At least it sure appears that way on the surface. He didn't. He, he seemed to uh, underestimate the will, the ability of his military to achieve a, a rapid victory. He seems to have miscalculated the impact of the Western sanctions. Uh, certainly seems to have got wrong the willingness of the Ukrainians to fiercely resist a Russian invasion. Where does that where does that leave Putin right now? If there's if he's been very wrong in a lot of his assumptions. Well, yeah, it leaves him in a very precarious position, and and I would add on to that. And one thing that I think is surprised to Vladimir Putin even more is that. This is not just a response from the Americans and the British and the French. Uh, you know, as we said, it's a sort of a fairly, fairly uh, united uh, approach from NATO, but even beyond NATO. And I think this is some of the most surprising pressure. Uh, some of the states in Asia, for example, outside of China, which we already discussed, um, but Japan, um, South Korea and Singapore, for example, putting sanctions on. And those are states that live in the in the environment uh, near uh, near Russia, especially South Korea and Japan, and have their own sort of uh, issues to play with Russia. So the fact that more globally, we're seeing support against this invasion, I think, is, is, is challenging for Putin. Where it leaves him, I think, is in a very uh, precarious position because his options have become more and more limited. And I think that we will see conflicts going more in the way that Russian activities in Aleppo and Grozny happened uh, in the coming months. And also, as we've already seen um, him invoke cards that are that he wanted to kind of hold uh, in his chest uh, before, which is uh, weapons of mass destruction, potentially cyber escalation. Uh, those are the cards that I think, at least from a rhetorical perspective, you'll see him wielding more. Whether he actually will use them, uh, I think, is a bigger question. But I think you'll see him sort of wielding those uh, out as he's he's losing conventionally. Do you think NATO is correct to stay out of it in terms of uh, boots on the ground in Ukraine or a no-fly zone? Uh, I see the merits of it in many ways, and I see the, the, the detractions. I think that the challenge is going to be um, is you know, the rhetoric about it. Uh, there's one thing, uh, you know, not to want to get involved with Russia in a, in a global conflict that might spread beyond the borders of Ukraine. I understand that. Uh, but at the same point, greenlighting uh, Vladimir Putin through repeatedly saying we're not being involved, we're not getting involved, we don't want a conflict with Russia, that also has its implications and sort of greenlights Putin to keep uh, ratcheting up uh, the way that he's conducting this and prosecuting this conflict. So I think there needs to be a balance there. I think you know, when we think about what is defined as as an armed attack or intervention, um, I think we need to sort of press the boundaries a bit. Does that mean that we start marching tanks into Ukraine um, or create a no-fly zone, a traditional no-fly zone? Uh, I think probably not, but I think there are ways that we can sort of engage that that, that can still push uh, Putin. Last question for you, Jonathan. We just got 30 seconds here, if you can. Do you see any way out of this diplomatically? I mean, there's been talk about offering Putin the golden bridge to get out of this, whether it's some sort of declaration of neutrality for Ukraine, and that's the starting point for some sort of negotiated uh, exit of this. I mean, they are talking. The talks don't seem to be going anywhere, but at least they're talking. In 30 seconds, do you see a diplomatic way out of this thing? I think it's going to be very challenging unless, you know, both sides uh, find uh, something to change their fundamental premise of what, how they want to get out of this. And I mean, the side here, which is the aggressor, is Russia. Its demands, its maximalist demands at this point, I, uh, Putin is so uh, dug in 
uh, the idea of Ukraine promising it will never go to NATO, but the bigger uh, demand of basically saying, recognizing that parts of Ukraine are not parts of Ukraine, uh, which is a which is Putin's strongest demand. I just don't see there being a, a position right now for the Ukrainians to feel they should have to accept that. Jonathan, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's get an update now on the Alan Schoenborn case. Schoenborn was found not criminally responsible for the deaths of his own three children in 2008 in Merritt, B.C. The children were smothered and stabbed. Schoenborn was charged with three counts of murder, but found not criminally responsible because of his mental state and condition he's been living in a secure psychiatric hospital but now he's been granted overnight leave from the hospital after a bc review board hearing i've got dave Teixeira standing by he's a spokesperson for the family members of the children who were killed here have a listen let's get a little background in this case now have a listen to this report by global news reporter Kristen robinson Schoenborn has lived behind these walls for more than a decade after he was found not criminally responsible for the 2008 murders of his three children, 10-year-old daughter Caitlin, 8-year-old Max, and 5-year-old Corden at their mother's home in Merritt. The BC Review Board now granting Schoenborn's request for short visits outside at the discretion of the hospital director. This is someone who, who, who could escape, could leave, and we wouldn't know. And there's no obligation on, behalf, on the hospital's side to notify anyone, even if he was missing for a day or two. Schoenborn has already had about 20 escorted outings. His progress in treatment positive, except for three recent violent episodes involving other inmates. The decision means Schoenborn will be allowed to apply for unescorted day passes. Okay, let's discuss this case now with my guest, Dave Teixeira. Dave is a spokesperson for the Clark family. Very sadly, uh, Schoenborn's ex-wife, Darcy Clark, passed away in 2019, the mother of these three slain children. Uh, the family, though, continues to advocate in this case. And I'm very pleased to welcome Dave back to the show. Dave, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mike, for having me. Okay, Dave, let's talk about the decision that's come down now from the BC Review Board. What is, what's the bottom line here? Well, the bottom line is that even though they found him yet again in almost every time on these annual reviews, they actually wrote in the report that Mr. Schornborn continues to present a significant risk to the safety of the public. Yet in their wisdom, they've now decided to grant him up to 28 days of unescorted leave uh, outside the facility at the discretion of the hospital director, <clears throat> where he can have access to drugs and alcohol and all the other vices, <clears throat> excuse me, that, uh, that seem to cause him problems. Does he also, though, not face some sort of restrictions that he's, he's, isn't he under an order not to take drugs and alcohol? Well, well, yes. I mean, he, <clears throat> Excuse me, Mike. He's he was also under an order, if you will, not to murder his three children. And this is not someone who um, respects the rule of law. He is a lifelong criminal. He has trouble with drugs and alcohol. He has trouble with authority. He doesn't like seeing young blonde women. So this is a problem. We, and he, being out in the community unescorted doesn't make any sense in this uh, in in this case. So when you say unescorted overnight leaves for 28 days, is that like consecutive days? So he could be away from the psychiatric hospital for 28 days in a row, unescorted overnight, doesn't have to come back to the hospital and check in? Is that right? That's correct. That, that's okay. what we understand. It's up to 28 days. Now, we're not sure of the radius <clears throat> of where he needs to um, remain. So whether that's strictly within the Tri-Cities or if that's in the province of British Columbia, just the concern that everyone should have 
is that Sean Bourne, after murdering his three children, evaded police for 10 days. So this is someone who is used to being on his own, prefers to be on his own, and doesn't want to be confined. He, he wants to get out. He doesn't want to get better. And his progress has been very limited over the, the 10, 12 years he's been uh, in the hospital setting. Okay. Does the, the ruling that came out, though, said that, what, that he has made progress in, in, in managing his problems? Correct. Yeah, I, I, so I, I guess, Mike, it's it's really the scale of it. So in the sense that during COVID, while he's been separated from other patients, he has not attacked any other patients. But even even as we heard in the uh, the piece that you played before I came on, yeah. that piece was about a year or two old, and he had three violent incidences with patients. So during COVID in an isolated setting where he's been he's been isolated in the geriatric ward at Colony Farm his behavior has been better but even as we heard uh, just uh, about 10 days ago in his review board hearing his own doctor does not want him to go into a group home because his doctor is concerned that because he doesn't get along with other people that that will set his progress back yet he's going to be out in society where he can go to the mall he can go to a soccer field. He can come out and not have the skills to cope with a community that he has not been part of for a dozen years. Now, speaking of Dave Teixeira, he's a spokesperson for the Clark family. Uh, Alan Schoenborn's ex-wife, Darcy Clark, passed away a few years ago, the mother of the three children who were slain here. The, the position of the family, Dave, is continues to be that Schoenborn should be kept in the psychiatric facility and not allowed out. Is that correct? Absolutely. He hasn't yeah. shown the requisite progress. Um, he, uh, what we heard during this review hearing, which by the way, happens every year, yeah. he's refused drug and drug and alcohol counseling. He's disruptive in other counseling uh, sessions that he is. And that's the type of person he is. He wants to get out, doesn't want to get better, doesn't understand what the big deal is. And unfortunately, once he gets out and he's confronted by situations which aggravate him, or he decides to use drug and alcohol, or he decides not to use his his prescribed medication, he's going to fall back into those patterns, which will be dangerous for him and the community. This isn't even serving him. So yes, the family doesn't want him out. And I think most residents would not want him out. But also, yeah. if he was of sound mind, he'd realize he is not yet capable of handling the stresses of everyday society outside the walls of Colony Farm. You mentioned that Right in the, the ruling that has been released here, it, it says there, quoted exactly, all the parties agree that Mr. Schoenborn continues to constitute a significant threat to the safety of the public. And the panel has no hesitation in making this finding, unquote. That's right in the in the ruling. Mm -hmm. And yet he's still being allowed these unescorted leave. Now, I note, I note Dave, that it says the, it's an unescorted leave up to 28 days at the discretion of the director of the hospital, mm -hmm. correct? So do we, has he been let out? Is he still in the hospital? Like what's yeah. going on now? Yeah. So that, that is an important distinction is it's at the discretion of the hospital director. But what yeah. we've seen over the years is as Shorenborn is given freedoms, the hospital director has been granting them. So yes, there's a bit of a gatekeeper there. And I think that's, you know, that's wise because, you know, each day might be a different situation. So it's not an automatic get out of jail free for 28 day pass, but there is a, a mechanism by which uh, the director is now the, the, the person who decides. But the concern yeah. is if he disappears, doesn't return, 
there's no also no obligation of the hospital to notify anyone. And what I have found over uh, the years through freedom of information requests, that it, over an eight-year period, over 200 patients did not return on time. Some have been late by a few hours, but some have been days. And at least three during my latest FOI found that the patients didn't return at all. And one of those three patients was found uh, dead in a ditch in Winnipeg. So what we're seeing here, Mike, is that while there might be all these, uh, you know, gatekeeper sort of restrictions in place, once someone gets out and someone of the mindset of Shorenborn, who whose natural sense is to flee authority, my belief is he will disappear and he will hurt, mm. if not maim again. And I'm not sure what the why we would be taking this risk when everyone, as you noted, says, "Oh yeah, this is a guy who's a high risk." Yet let's let's experiment and let him out in society for up to 28 days and see what happens. Last question for you, Dave. This was a decision not by the Parole Board of Canada. I think it's important people know that this is a decision yeah. by a provincial body called the BC Review Board, which is responsible for orders on people who are not who are found not criminally responsible for a crime due to their mental disorder. And this decision, I, I took a look at the review, BC Review Board's website on their mandate. And to quote it exactly, it says, the review board must take into account the safety of the public, which is the paramount consideration. The paramount consideration. It also goes on to talk about the mental condition of the accused, the reintegration of the accused into society, and the other needs of the accused. But it says the number one consideration, the paramount one, is the safety of the public. So how does that square with the findings in the judgment that Mr. Schoenborn still constitutes a, a significant threat to the safety of the public? If, if the safety of the public is paramount, why are they letting them out? And Mike, you've hit the nail on the head. And in fact, that language was um, partly put in because of the efforts of, the, of of Darcy Clark's family over the last dozen years, changing the Criminal Code of Canada, working with many attorney generals and, and solicitor generals, both here in the province and at the federal level. But for whatever reason, these quasi-judicial boards, these BC review boards, take it upon themselves to do what they believe is right. Because let's be frank, if the hospital is not getting patients better and they can't be released, then the hospital is not doing their job. I actually think it's a good thing when a hospital puts in a gatekeeper and says, look, you're not ready yet, Shornborn. You need to do these things to get through the gate. But they don't. They they seem to put them up. If you look through the judicial here or the hearings or the decisions over the years, he's supposed to do all of these different things and he just doesn't do it. The other okay. part is you find that the BC Review Board's very, very uh, secretive in what they do. In fact, the rulings that came out last week they don't publish them. In fact, I had to send them out using my my own social media. And since then, there's been over uh, roughly about 20,000 downloads of this. People are interested, but yeah. for whatever reason, the review board and the government keep, makes it very difficult to find out what's going on. Dave, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you.